Welcome to the Get Fire Smart Podcast, a place to listen, learn, and hear from fire smart leaders to understand how to implement fire smart strategies and activities to protect your home, neighborhood, and community from the threat of wildfire. On the show, we interview fire smart leaders from across the world to share stories that provide practical tips and lessons to get fire smart. From community leaders to firefighting professionals to passionate homeowners, we dive into the stories of FireSmart and how you, our listeners, can learn the practical steps you can take to begin your FireSmart journey. And now, it's time to get FireSmart. Back with the Get FireSmart podcast, and today we're speaking with Jen Barron, PhD candidate at UBC. Jen is a transdisciplinary ecologist and researcher with PICS, Pacific Institute of Climate Solutions, Wildfire and Carbon Project. Jen has a focus on wildland fire disturbance and landscape ecology and data science. She is an expert in understanding fire and its behavior. In this episode, we discuss Jen's background, the history of fire in BC, and the importance of understanding and restoring active fire regimes in BC. This is a great episode. Let's dive in. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Jen, where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from my home office in North Vancouver. Amazing. So a PhD candidate at UBC, that's amazing. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of focus, your study. We'll, we'll talk a lot about your passion for wildfire and prescribed fire and cultural burning, but give us a background on who you are and, and what you focus on today. So um, I describe myself as a fire ecologist. So my PhD research is on understanding fire on, you know, the modern landscape in interior British Columbia. I also teach at the University of British Columbia, and I'm involved a lot in applying research back to management. So really interested in how we can change forest management to manage for, you know, current wildfire risk values. And what drew you into a career like that? It's pretty unique. It's pretty specialized. What was your kind of origin story to bring you into that space? Sure. Yeah. So I have a pretty strong background in applied ecology. So in my undergraduate degree, I studied environmental science and I became really interested in large scale questions around disturbance, things like invasive species, climate change, and also historical disturbance regimes. Um, and so through those connections, I had the opportunity to work on fire in British Columbia for my graduate research. And that was in 2019. And so I've been, you know, scaling that work and expanding it ever since. Amazing. And when you talk about your research, if you had to kind of explain your research at a high level, what what is really your area of focus and what where's your attention really been over the last little while? Yeah. So I would say it's really shifted over time. When I first started working on fire, I was really interested in changes past to present. So how have uh, fire attributes changed? Are we burning more of the landscape today? How has the forest types changed? Um, is there more fuel on the landscape? And increasingly, as I've seen, you know, more and more recurring severe fire seasons as I've been, you know, building my graduate research, I'm also interested in thinking about where ecosystems are the most altered and where different amounts of fuel arrangements put communities most at risk. And then how we can use strategic treatments or forest management to restore fire to some of these ecosystems while still protecting communities and reducing wildfire risk. Amazing. Now, not to put you on the spot, but you're on the podcast. What's your research kind of telling you? Obviously, those are big questions you're looking to tackle. They're big research. There's, you know, you're looking to investigate a lot of these insights. But at a high, high level, what are you seeing? What's becoming clear to you? And what's what's jumping out to, you know, people that are listening to this podcast that would be interesting? Yeah, so I think most people kind of anecdotally are recognizing that fire today is very different from fire 
in recent memory, so throughout the 20th century, um, in interior British Columbia, we're exposed to much more fire than we were in the past, both in terms of the amount of area burned, but especially, you know, the number of communities evacuated this year, each year, the number of, of structures lost, the amount of resources that we're spending on fire suppression. And so we know that extreme fire seasons are becoming more common. They're getting worse. And we know that that's a result of climate change and of forest management. So the way that we've managed our forest throughout the past hundred years is not conducive to the way fire is currently behaving and the way fire wants to behave on the landscape. We also know from historical studies that in the past, fire was a very important and very frequent part of these landscapes. It helped keep ecosystems healthy, but it also helped protect settlements. Uh, so by having a lot of fire at low severity, it protected the broader landscape from, you know, a single high severity event. So we know that our landscapes at risk of fire, fire used to keep these landscapes more stable. And so in order to protect communities and ecosystems from severe fire, we have to use fire as a tool to restore ecosystems. You just mentioned two topics that are of probably high discussion points in the general public. Number one is our fire seasons are starting earlier, as we're seeing now, like it's it's just early June, but fire has been on the news cycle for the last four to five weeks already in Alberta, Nova Scotia, even in BC. And so that's a big piece. Fires are starting earlier and they're they're going longer. I know last season there's fires in September and October. So that's topic number one that's of interest. And then topic number two, the fact that fires actually can be a tool and that good fire is a thing. And putting fire in the landscape, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of knowledge, and there's a lot of value in there. So very interested. I mean, we could spend a several podcasts on both those topics, but what have you found when you share those two major pieces? What jumps out at people in some of the conversations that you had? Are people surprised to learn about both factors? Are they encouraged? What's When you share those two pieces, what jumps out? Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's a lot of focus on the first side of things. Fires are getting worse uh, in the media right now. You know, there's Tons of reports and, you know, in part, you know, there's an obligation to report on the current wildfire situation for sure. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing a lot of recognition that the current management strategy isn't working. So part of the reason why we're in this situation is because we've been so successful at suppressing fires for the past hundred years. And because we've been putting all the fires out, there's been a lot of fuel that's accumulated as a result of fire suppression. Uh, as well as changes in the composition and structure of forests. So we have more fire intolerant species. They're more homogenous and dense across the landscape. And then when we get really hot, dry conditions, it becomes really hard to suppress those fires. So so that's why it makes sense to do some of these treatments to reduce fire risk on the landscape. And in general, I would say in the scientific community, there's very strong recognition over the past 10 years that Total fire suppression is not a viable management strategy moving forward. There is more of a lag, I would say, in our management systems and in terms of things like policy, legislation, and capacity in order to be able to to transition in that direction. So I would say one of the leaders in this space and some of the communities that I've been working with in interior British Columbia come from Indigenous communities who are doing large fuel treatments to restore fire to these systems where it was traditionally maintained by Indigenous fire stewardship. Maybe unpack that a little bit. I think we've had previous podcast guests speaking about traditional knowledge, fire keepers, cultural prescribed fire. But once again, it'd be great for you to just give a description of what that is. Maybe give some background on history. I think a lot of people would be unaware of just, you know, the history and the culture and just the traditions that have been in place for many, many years. Valuable, valuable. But can you just give some background on, on that as well? Sure. Yeah. So 
through, you know, a combination of fire history, record reconstructions from tree rings, from oral history, from within communities, different data sources that we have. We know that in these ecosystems that used to burn more frequently in, in interior British Columbia, parts of the Okanagan, part of the Rocky Mountain, parts of the Rocky Mountain Trench, areas of the Caribou, places that used to burn more frequently, in large part were burning because of intentional indigenous fire stewardship. So in other words, the number of fires that we see in those fire history records in combination with, you know, oral histories tell us that it's not possible to have that extent of fire activity from lightning alone. And that we know that there was the intentional use of fire as a management tool by communities for thousands of years that these systems co-evolved with. The loss of that stewardship through colonization and then the shift towards more colonial forest management systems is part of the reason why we have such extensive fire risk today. So we know that fire was used, you know, across large portions of North America for many different values, including to reduce risk near settlements, but also for for cultural values, to produce foods and medicines, to produce forage for game, to maintain travel corridors or, you know, watering sites during travel. And so fire was used for many different values on the landscape that it hasn't been for for, uh, over 100 years. One of the ways that we can restore fire to the landscape is through restoring that relationship to the land. Um, And particularly in places where indigenous fire stewardship has been removed, it's very important that future management is indigenous-led on that territory. Because part of the reason the system is disrupted is because of the removal of that intentional management. Amazing. Maybe to dive a little bit further into that description, I think it'd be relevant to talk about a recent project that you were on. We were talking before we started recording and you've got a great backdrop sharing the project details, but give us a recent example of a project you were on. Where was it? What was the focus? And what were some of those results? And, and give some text there if you can. Sure. Yeah. So I recently helped out with a large prescribed fire operation in Southeastern British Columbia on Tanaha traditional territory at Akam which is a First Nations community located near Cranbrook. They, uh, over the past couple of years, have been growing and expanding a fuels treatment and prescribed fire program. And they recently pulled off a 1,200 hectare burn of an area that was previously a combination of different thinning treatments and then untreated areas. The intention of this was not only to reduce fire risk for the community, but also to stimulate food production for different cultural plants. And also to help restore fire to the system so that in the future they can look at developing a cultural burning program and reintroducing fire stewardship to this land. Uh, so that was led by the community, organized, you know, and facilitated by ACOM and by Tanaha. And it's really the first step in these types of restoration projects. So one thing I'll note about, you know, firebanks restoration as well is that ecosystems are not static through time and all of these treatments are ephemeral. They only last a certain period of time. So it's really more of the development of a maintenance plan through time for these ecosystems than a single treatment. And this type of burn operation is the first step towards restoring these ecosystems. Amazing. Can you give some background on that project? What goes into a project of that size? The planning, the coordination, the traditional knowledge, maybe just share a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so something like this was probably about five years of planning. And in most cases near communities, before you can do a prescribed fire operation, you first have to do some type of thinning treatment or remove fuel from the system because it's not safe to burn under the current fuel loading. So that would have been, you know, several years of applying for funding because it was a large unit. The funding came from many different locations. There were many different contractors that did the thinning treatments, doing thinning treatments, removing fuel from the stand, and then removing the residual piles. And 
the thinning, uh, I'll maybe I'll give some details as well. So that's more opening the forest up to more open forest condition where some areas of closed canopy cover remaining for wildlife. So it's not, you know, total harvesting. It's actually not, you know, there's not, it costs money. It's not mm-hmm. to remove um, merchantable timber from the system. It's to remove fuel so that you can apply fire as a treatment. And so there were many years of that. There's a combination of mechanical and hand treatment. And then to coordinate the burn, there was a, you know, an extensive burn plan that had to be approved by BC Welfare Service. Many people on sites, you know, several contract crews that were focused on holding operations around the fire, uh, uh, many units on ignitions. There was heli ignitions. You know, it's a very extensive mm. planning operation to pull off a burn like this. What was it like for you being there, knowing that there's up to five years of just planning, engagement, partnership, and then to see the project roll out? Explain, I mean, this is your area of research. This is your passion. What was it like to be there and to watch it in action? I mean, it was super exciting for me. This is, of all the burns that I've been on, this was by far the one I've been looking forward to the most, you know, because of all the people coming together and also the scale of the operation and the meaning behind it, you know, who the stakeholder is and whose territory they are on. It was also really interesting for me from a fire behavior perspective, because often a lot of these fuel reduction treatments are at a relatively small spatial scale. So I've been on burns as small as seven hectares. This was 1,200 hectares, and we also burned an adjacent 100 hectares the day before. So very large scale treatment, really great fire behavior. I should note also that the the fire behavior, fire effects monitoring is being done by Tanaha Nation Guardians. And so I'm actually going back there in a couple of weeks with the community to look at the fire effects from the community's perspective. So I think both the planning process and then the burn operation and also the the monitoring after the burn and being able to kind of export this model for their communities is, is a great example. That's awesome. Just to hear all the detail that goes into it. I know you guys are still in the process, the fire effects monitoring and seeing, you know, how the treatment, if it was successful, but at a high level, was it a success? Did the project meet its objectives? What would be your initial insights from just being there on the day and kind of the weeks leading after it? Yeah, from being on site and then also um, seeing some of the pictures um, from after the burn, I would say it was very successful at meeting objectives. One of the challenges in doing prescribed fire is that you're also often very constrained to conservative burning windows, um, which means that, you know, you're prioritizing safety, right? But you may not get the consumption that you want, the fuel consumption that you want if you don't have, you know, dry enough fuels, for example. This was right at the cusp, like it was perfect burning conditions. They pulled off another large one the next day elsewhere in the trench. It's the largest burning season that region's done since 2003. And... The consumption was great. I mean, it was exactly the kind of fire effects that that they were going for. It was very kind of like patchy. Some areas low severity. Some areas you got a low level of overstory mortality. And you can already see some of the vegetation coming back. And it's going to be great for elk in the fall. So, Wow. That's amazing. Maybe connect this with Fire Smart. I think you talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about we've been so good at suppression. We've been so good at response that the fuel load has started to grow and, and increase over the years. And so now we're in this position of vulnerability, one would say, where there's a huge fuel load. You have you know, natural ignition of, of, of fires, you have human-caused fires, so there's this increasing risk. Fire burn obviously is a focus of increasing resiliency You know, at the community level, the neighborhood level, the house level. Maybe to share your insights with your value and your perspective of fire smart, how this integrates with putting good fire in the landscape and Maybe just share your your feedback on the FireSmart program in general. For sure, yeah. So um, I think FireSmart's important because it 
provides an actionable strategy and level of autonomy for folks that live in fire exposed communities. So I think often, you know, it's easy to feel powerless when we talk about the extent of climate change impacts on fire, for example. And one of the big tools that we have in our toolkit is vegetation management. So fuels are the number one thing that we can control in the fire environment. And that happens, you know, at the landscape level and at the individual structure level. And so I think that, you know, if you live in a fire exposed community, homeowners do have some level of, both, you know, responsibility and autonomy over the fire risk of their property and the risk to their neighbors and their community. FireSmart is very focused at the homeowner level, uh, which is essential for reducing fire risk in communities. But the reality is that a lot of these ignitions that come in and threaten communities also start on the broader landscape where there's very abundant fuel. So it's very important to couple the fire smart program with kind of broader, larger scale fuel reduction treatments so that both if you have an ignition reach the community, you know, you've applied fire smart principles, but also hopefully we're reducing the risk of an ignition ever reaching a community um, would be the goal or being able to manage an ignition so that it's not threatening a community, for example. So one thing I think a lot about is the strategic application of treatments based on values. FireSmart's a good example of this because you're, you know, probably doing a very involved treatment near a community based on the value of like community protection. You might do a much larger treatment for much lower cost in an area of the backcountry that seems like it would have high fire risk of coming into community that would be done in a very different way. And so that can be reinforced by fuel reduction treatments in locations that, uh, where fire might spread into community. And together, those those principles combined with fire smart principles can help protect the negative consequences of fire. I love your description of kind of connecting the large scale programs with small scale because they do have to work together. And I think people listen to our episode today. Are, I don't want to use the word overwhelmed, but when they hear about the complexity of the project that you are on the level of planning, they hear the word helicopter ignition, they hear about multiple crews. It's like, whoa, this is a big program. But I think you made a good comparison where any of these large scale programs that are putting good fire in the landscape, in addition to the homeowner level, what can they do to remove kind of ignition opportunities and increase resiliency? So I think that's pretty special. And would you say that's how you see us moving forward as a province and how you see our communities becoming more resilient is both the large scale put a good fire in the landscape and then the small scale home focus? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a wide variety of tools in the toolbox and we have to use all of them to both address wildfire risk to communities and the the level of disruption to ecosystems for multiple values, including things like, you know, old growth, community watershed production, wildlife habitat values, invasive species. Like there's many things we manage core uh, that fire is part of that toolbox. And there's many different approaches to that. So I think the approach is very specific to the location and the system. What makes the most sense is always to put treatments where fire wants to go. And so it requires kind of an understanding of how fire would behave on that landscape. But absolutely, I mean, even if you have a highly treated landscape, if you get an ignition close to a community that that has a lot of, you know, high risk areas in the wild and urban interface, then you still have a community at risk. So fire smart, of course, is an essential component. I love your answer speaking to the toolbox. I think that's a great way to put it where we do have a different different tools to fight fire and we have to be selective in which ones we use for that application. I think your research is a great example of that, of using different applications to really kind of restore the fire ecosystem. And so I guess a couple of personal questions for you as we kind of start to wrap up is it's a big task ahead of us. There's a, there's a ton of work that needs to be done to make our province more resilient. And there's things that are factoring and increasing that risk. 
What drives you? What's your passion? Yeah, I mean, I am very motivated by the desire for folks to do things differently. I think that there's a lot of really great work being done in this province right now to try to shift, you know, our management strategy while also making sure that we still have, you know, sufficient resources for suppression when we need to, to protect communities. But I think there's a lot of drive coming from a lot of, a lot of young people in this industry who are really interested in thinking about doing things differently, thinking really big picture and also by leadership from indigenous communities directly. I mean, they are the original stewards of this land. They know best how to manage it with fire involved. And I think that we, you know, there is, and a very important role to play in, in restoring indigenous land stewardship and governance in place of uh, restoring fire regimes. Amazing. Another question, I think you're probably best to answer this out of a lot of people is, what do you feel that you wish more people understood about fire? Yeah, so I would say fire is, you know, in many ways, a complex problem, right? It's a sticky situation that we're in right now because the consequences of our decisions that were made to protect communities and values are catching up to us. And they're catching up to us faster than our suppression systems can adapt. And that means that communities are being placed at risk. But fire is also part of the solution. So the goal of fuels treatments, in my mind, is not just to, you know, make it so that it's easier to suppress a fire in the future years. It's to restore the positive and more benign effects of fire to that system so that we can allow it to burn and get the positive you know, impacts towards the ecosystem in terms of plant regeneration, recycling nutrients, you know, removing pest species from the system, protecting waterways so that all of those positive feedbacks are back in place without putting communities at risk. And so that if we do get an ignition there, there's not very much fuel for a fire to consume. It is amazing when you go to a, whether it's a treatment, whether it's a natural fire activity and you go back after an area has been burnt and how fast the vegetation grows back. I've been to a couple of projects where you walk back, it's a week later, two weeks later, and you, it doesn't even look the same. And it's, I think it would amaze people just to see how fast you see scorched, you know, a scorched result. And then right away, boom, in a couple of weeks, if it's done correctly, it's just the vegetation. It's truly amazing. Do, would you agree with that? Would you share any insight to our listeners that, of, of things you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, in, in my mind as an ecologist, it's not surprising, right? So we know that these systems are adapted to fire. They co-evolved with fire. And if you remove fire from that system, they can't thrive in, in the assemblages that they evolved with. So it makes a lot of sense that when you reintroduce fire to these systems, a lot of things come back. So, yeah, I mean, I also am always, you know, amazed by how quickly things come back after a fire. But I also love to see that trend over over the period of years as well, too, because there's kind of the short term influx of species after fire. But you know, over the course of years, you see some plants come back that people say haven't been there over decades. So, I mean, the short and the long term to me is very interesting. Amazing. And as we start to wrap up, what's what's kind of next for you? What's what's on your focus for research for the year ahead? What's getting you excited? Yeah. So right now we're working on a couple of projects. Um, I'm working with the First Nations Emergency Services Society, Finesse, on developing a landscape level a fire management plan for the Southeast, which we're looking to center uh, First Nations voices and vision for fire management and think about how we can facilitate, you know, long-term funding opportunities, training and year-round employment in, in and around communities and how we can prioritize treatments to protect, you know, rural, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities in fire-exposed regions. So I'm really excited about that project right now. Also really excited to continue working on in the prescribed fire space. I mean, I 
I'm a researcher. I mostly work at my desk, but I absolutely love when I get to be on a fire like like most of us. Um, that's what got me into this. So super excited to continue to engage on that as well. Amazing. And as a researcher, where would you point our listeners to, whether it's papers, articles, insights? Obviously, we talked before we started recording about the recent Globe and Mail article that came out in reference to the project that you were on. I think that's an amazing resource. So we'll link to that. But where would you point our, point our listeners to, to to get familiar with the concept of good fire? You know, where would you advise? Yeah, um, Amy Cardinal Christensen hosts a podcast called Good Fire. That's also a great a great starting place if you're interested in that space. Otherwise, there's some great resources on the Canada Wildfire website as well. And then I'm happy to share, you know, kind of continued resources as they come out. A lot of us have been doing a lot of media recently with the recent fire season uh, that's very quickly picked up in Alberta, BC and now Nova Scotia. So, yeah, anything that comes out of our research group, I would say, is, you know, usually a pretty reliable resource on the fire situation, but also kind of thinking about long term management and planning. Amazing. I want to thank you for your passion, your dedication to research in this unique field. And it's pretty special to see yeah, how dedicated you are in looking at prescriptions, treatments, putting good fire in the landscape. So thank you on behalf of the Fire Smart team for that. I'll ask you kind of any last comments, any recommendations, insights for our listeners as we head into the fire season, other things they can do that can have a big impact, elements they should keep an eye out for. Any last comments for our, for our audience? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, on the topic of this recent really successful prescribed fire season in the Southeast, it was super successful, but it also meant that there was a lot more, you know, smoke production during that fire season than people might be used to from prescribed fires. And I would say to some extent, you know, I, I understand folks don't want a lot of extra smoke when you're exposed during the fire season, but the, the long-term goal of these types of treatments is to prevent severe wildfires in communities and prevent, you know, smoke from reaching your community during the fire season. So I'd really encourage folks to, you know, reach out to us if you have questions. We're always happy to talk about this kind of stuff and kind of work with us to think about the long-term goal for what, you know, what's your vision for your community and the role of fire, you know, if you lived in a fire-exposed area. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing a little about your research, your passion, and yeah, 